Church, if you could, please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to continue in our study of this amazing book this morning, which they are all amazing. They are all God's Word. They're amazing in different ways, but this book particularly, I think, applies to our situation as Paul is writing to a church in Corinth who, just like us, is not perfect. In fact, this letter applies to every church that I can think of. We all need this, this book of realignment. We've looked at the first half of chapter 1. As Paul is introducing himself, he's thanking God for the grace that he has shown to the Corinthian church. He calls them saints and, and ones that are holy and set apart. They are already guiltless, but then he appeals to them by the name of Jesus Christ that they all agree in verse 10 and that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And he addresses this division in the church. I've heard that there are some of you that are saying, well, I follow him and I follow this guy and I follow this. And he condemns that and says at the end in verse 17, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. That's the theme that we're going to continue this morning. But before we do that, I want to open with another illustration, and I got to thinking about this, and I don't know why I do this. I know you can't tell looking at me, but apparently I love food, because the first thing that came to my mind when I'm writing this is Cain's chicken fingers. Let me explain to you what Cain's chicken fingers has to do with this passage in 1 Corinthians. Now, I don't want you to get me wrong. When you hear Cain's, you might think, what about Chick-fil-A? Like you're a Christian. It's okay. I love Chick-fil-A. I love Chick-fil-A. Usually, if I have a choice of what to eat, I'm going to Chick-fil-A. All right? So I love it. All right? So what do I bring up Cain's? Well, the founder of Cain's operated on a simple philosophy. Pick something and do it well. And at one point, he was going to get a loan for this business. What are you going to do? I'm going to sell chicken fingers. Well, what else are you going to do? I'm just going to sell chicken fingers. This isn't ever going to work. He's like, no, you don't understand. These are going to be great chicken fingers. Uh, I just don't know if I can put my money behind that. Well, obviously, he ended up getting the money. He ended up bringing his restaurant, and they make a killing. And you know what they make? Chicken fingers. That's it. How do you do this? The restaurant is simple. They just sell chicken fingers. That's all they sell. That's all they have to sell. You know why? Because they do it very well. They know, they have recognized that there is power in just focusing on the right thing and then letting it shine and people will come. You don't go to Cane's because you want options. You don't go to Cane's because you want a cheap meal. You go to Cane's because you want really good chicken fingers in the sauce. That's why you go. Now the bread is nice. I love the bread. Okay, don't get me wrong. The french fries are nice, but you go for the chicken fingers. That's where the power is. The power is in the chicken, not the extra stuff, not the sweet tea. And today, we're going to be looking at something similar in the church. Here's the main idea this morning. God's word demonstrates God's power in God's church. If you want to know where the power of the church is seated... There's nothing magical about this piece of furniture. There's really nothing magical about what this is made of. The binding, the cover, the pages, the ink, there's nothing special about any of this. Why do churches and why have churches historically gathered around this idea of reading God's word and explaining and applying God's word? Because there is 
power in God's word. How do I know? We've been doing this for 2,000 years and it's still happening. So it's here. God's word demonstrates God's power in God's church. With all of that groundwork being laid, let's stand together for the reading of God's powerful word. First Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Thus says the Lord, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Let's pray. Lord, we need you, and we need your word, and we need you, Holy Spirit, to work through your word that you inspired so that we might experience your power this morning. Take us and mold us and shape us according to what you have written for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, church. You can be seated. <clears throat> so when we start here, looking at verse 18, he begins with these words, for the word of the cross. This is the topic at hand. This is what's going to occupy our conversation this morning. The word of the cross is the same gospel that Paul was sent to preach if you back up one verse in verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. So that is the word of the cross that he's referring to here. And immediately after this, if you look at verse 17 again, he quantifies the preaching, or qualifies the preaching ministry. He says he came to preach not with words of eloquent wisdom. So really what Paul is doing here is he's contrasting two different types of words. If you look in the Greek, we see this word logos that we're familiar with from the book of John. John 1.1, in the beginning was the logos, the word. So that's what's being described here. And when you look at it in verse 17, there's this sophia logos, this sophos, this idea of wisdom. It's the same word that we get our word philosophy from. Phil being identified with love, philosophy, Sophie, wisdom, I love wisdom. It's the same thing we see here. It is a word of wisdom is what he's talking about. So I came to preach the gospel not with this word of wisdom, this message of wisdom, but in verse 18. Instead, the word of the cross. So there's a contrast happening here. And there's two types of message there's one message that sounds good, and then there's one that's true. What sounds good is not always true. And what's true does not always sound good. 
Sometimes they coexist, but the danger that Paul is warning about here is an improper elevation of what seems wise over what we know to be true. And we're seeking after one more than we are seeking after the other. And what is the evidence of that? The church is dividing. That's the evidence. That's the proof that that idolatry exists. Now, the word of the cross here, if you look back in verse 18, hits two different groups of people. And depending on which group one is in, it hits in two different ways. Look at the first group. The word of the cross is folly to whom? To those who are perishing. Now, this group is everybody who is lost in their sin. They are on a trajectory in a direction, and their destination is that they will perish. The wrath of God is stored up against those who do not trust Christ Jesus, and they are on a path to destruction. The only escape is faith in Christ. When this group hears the gospel, do you know what they think? This is made up. It's a waste of my time. It's a crutch. You just need that because your conscience is weak. The gospel is for weak-minded people who can't deal with the harsh realities of the world. I know what you're thinking because I thought that for a long time. I get it. I'm here to tell you now that is utterly false. There is a wisdom in the gospel that I hope to show over the next couple of weeks that trumps this thinking and wisdom of the world. Those who are perishing want something like that because there's something within us that is built up in our pride by being able to say, look how wise I am that I'm able to discern and to reject and to accept what appeals to me. It is a pride that causes us to act this way. Now, we don't typically vocalize these things I just said. Sometimes we deny it, even though we really believe it. Sometimes it'll come out differently. Well, who's to say that you're right and that someone else is wrong? What about these other religions that all teach the same thing? I've tried Christianity, and it doesn't work. The Bible is illogical. The Christian faith is illogical. What this group really, really wants is eloquent persuasion, logic, reason, proof, charisma. All of these things are wonderful and great, and the Bible contains all of them. But the problem is this unhealthy elevation of wanting those things over wanting what God has revealed to us. If you look back at verse 17... Paul explains that he came to preach the gospel not with eloquent words of wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Here's the implication he's making. If I had preached the gospel to you with eloquent words of wisdom, then the cross of Christ would have been emptied of its power. You would have responded, but you would not have been responding to the cross. I've met some evangelists who are really good at getting people to walk an aisle and come down front and fill out a card. But even Billy Graham, the best of them, godly man, admitted, I would love if even a small fraction of those were genuine. And he believes that many are. 
But by and large, he recognized when you see 100,000 people come down, that's not 100,000 people trusting in Christ. That's 100,000 people who were deeply moved by something. And the danger here is that in his preaching with eloquent wisdom, there would be a large chunk of people that would come up and say, this is a great teaching. I've never heard this. I'm convinced. And they say all the right things, but they have not really been changed by the power of the cross. They've been changed by the power of persuasion. And you know what's going to happen? Their roots are not very deep. And when a storm comes, another persuasion comes along, it will be uprooted. So there's a power in the gospel that Paul wants to be careful. He does not dilute. For those who are perishing, the message of the cross is foolish. But the second group, those who are being saved, look back at verse 18. To us who are being saved, the word of the cross, it, is the power of God. The message of the cross is power. So Paul, if he preached in a room of both types of people, and if he proclaimed God's word without eloquent words of wisdom, as he describes in verse 17, half the group would think, amen, yes, wonderful. And the other half would think, this just isn't doing anything for me. It's just not, I'm just not getting anything. You see this pattern all throughout Acts. Paul goes to a place, and he steps up. He goes to Athens. He said, look at all these different things, and I see this statue back here to an unknown God. I'm going to tell you who that God is. And he proclaims, and he steps up and proclaims the gospel, and there's a group that say, this is, yes, we believe. Yes, okay, we believe. Amen. Then there's a group that says, this guy is off his rocker. How can, how can people have vastly different reactions to the word of God like that? Because there is something spiritual going on. And that's what we're seeing here in the text. Paul's point here is that the impact of the message has nothing to do with how it is being proclaimed. It has to do with which group you fall into. Half the room would be convinced Paul, if you just preached a little differently, it would have helped more people. And here's what Paul is saying. False. False. The power is in the gospel. And the gospel is in the word. If this is proclaimed, the Holy Spirit doesn't need Paul's eloquent words of wisdom in order to affect people. He doesn't need that. Therefore, bigger picture, backing out again, because we're in the context, we want to see this right. So backing out, therefore, the church should stop dividing over teachers in verses 10 through 17. That's the point that this makes in Paul's argument here. You should stop dividing because this really is irrelevant. The church is making a big deal about what packaging they like better, and that's irrelevant. Imagine a Christmas gift under a tree. It's wrapped in this beautiful paper, and then the one for whom you bought the present says something like this. I really would have enjoyed this a lot more if it had had the snowman paper instead of the Christmas tree paper. This really would have meant a lot more. I would have enjoyed it more, opening and listening to the sound. You know, the quality of the paper is so good. You can tell this other paper just doesn't have a good sound when you tear it. But, oh, I can, 
I can smell it as I open this. That's not the gift. <laughs> the paper makes little difference how someone's going to enjoy the gift on the inside. If that's genuinely the situation, you've got a bigger issue than what type of wrapping paper is being used. we got bigger problems. The power of the present isn't located in the wrapping. And in the same way, the power of preaching isn't in the style of proclamation. It's in the content, the Word of God. This is where the power is. As preaching conforms and exposes the Word of God, it conforms to the truth of the Word of God, that is where power comes from. And you have two different people who listen to this being proclaimed, and one person says, yes and amen, and the other person says, oh. I was there for a long time. I sat in the church where I was at. The preacher would preach over to the side. I'm, I'm going to step off the camera. I'm going to stay here. The preacher would step off over to the side. That's where his pulpit was. And there was a big chair right behind it where he sat. And he sat there the whole service. And he got up and would come to the pulpit. And I sat right about over here. And I'm listening to him preach one day. And I'm thinking, because I'm in high school, I'm thinking, what do I want to do when I grow up? And I'm listening to him preach. And I'm thinking, Okay, so this guy spends 40 hours a week in his office, and most of what he's doing is preparing to give this boring talk. This has got to be the worst job anybody could ever have. <gasps> Isn't God so funny? Doesn't he have a sense of humor? Of course I didn't get it. I was perishing. I'm looking for a funny illustration. <laughs> Hey, tell the one about the guy who said the thing in the water and help me. And I sent you three boats. Tell that one again. <laughs> the power of God's word is in the gospel. It's in the truth of the gospel. And the Holy Spirit inside of us grabs that as it's proclaimed and pulls it in and says, feed your soul on this, Christian. That's the power of behind the preaching of Paul, and that's what he wants them to consume as he proclaims. Now, if this is true, if the message of the cross is God's power, do you know what this means for us? Real straightforward application here. Number one, wordless people are powerless people. Wordless people are powerless people. When we read from our Bibles, we are literally taking in the power of God. I would tell my sixth grade students at uh, a couple of churches ago, I uh, had my Bible that I kept in my back pocket, and this is what I preached out of also, so I didn't have this, you know, preacher's Bible. I didn't have that. I just had this little back pocket Bible. That's what I preached out of, and I would tell the students, I, do you know why I keep this in my back pocket at all times? And even my kids will, have asked me sometimes, why do you always make sure you have that before you leave the house? If I got to run to Walmart, I get my wallet and I get my Bible. I'll forget my watch sometimes. I forgot it today. That was not intentional. I don't forget this. It goes in every time. Why? This is the power of God. You either believe that or you don't. I believe this is the power of God. So you know what? I'm going to have this on my person at all times, more or less. This is why we study the Bible, and we come to a hard passage, and we say, I don't get it. And, and it's, it's good and well-meaning to say, I don't get it, but God wrote it, and I believe it, and that settles it. Okay, that, that's all well and good. But do you understand that you are just ignoring untapped power in that moment? You're deferring to power that you've already understood and realized, and there is some untapped potential in that passage that you're just passing over. We need to become a people of the word if we want to be a powerful people. 
We need to study our Bibles and increase our grasp of the power of God. We need to memorize the Bible and store it in our hearts, not because we're commanded to, but because it's power. I'll be able to speak freely to people and not have to open to pages. I will just know within my heart, though my mother and my father forsake me, the Lord will take me in. I can't give that wisdom to somebody if I haven't memorized it first. Romans 10, 14 and 15, and then verse 17 says this, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So, faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. To the degree that the church ceases to be a people of the word, the church will cease to be powerful. When Stacy and I were visiting churches, this was right before Kristen was born. We had moved back to Shreveport. And when we were visiting churches, we went to several different places. We went to the church where I grew up. I say grew up. I went there a few years before college. We went to that church. We went to several other churches, the church we ended up being at. And we paid very careful attention when we walked in. We walked in the doors. We wanted to know, were people friendly? When people sat down and were listening, I looked around at people. I people watched. Do people look aggravated? Does there look like there's some kind of division in the church? I listened to the preaching. Is he stretching the text to say something it's not really saying? I grew up, and I went to some church services where the sermon series was Jesus in Disney movies. And each Sunday, they would look at a different Disney princess movie and say, here's how we, where we see Jesus in this movie. That's not the kind of church I want to go to. Not because it's a personal preference issue, but because the point of gathering is that this is the power. The preaching should be taking God's word and breaking it apart and explaining it. In the, in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, the people are going back and they're rebuilding the wall, they're rebuilding all of these things, and then there's this moment where they have this revival, and they get up, and there's a list of people listed in the scriptures, and they built this big platform, and they got up, and they're reading from the law. They're just taking the Old Testament and just reading it word for word. And then there's these people that go around, and it says they gave the sense to the people so they could understand. That's what the proclamation of God's word is. It is taking the word and explaining it. Therefore, if we want to be a powerful people, we need to be a word people. Why is it that our churches will move away from that then? I think there's a number of reasons, but one influential reason that I think applies to us has to do with our community. We live right in the Bible Belt. In our little bubble here, everything seems okay. I was listening to a podcast this week of a Christian apologist that lives in California. He went on vacation to Texas, and he said, it's so weird. I got into Texas, and I'm driving around, and like there's billboards with Jesus' name on it. If I saw that in California, I'd have thought the end of the world was happening. But no, I drive around, and I see a Bible verse posted somewhere. And I drive around Gina, and you know what we noticed when we came in? Even Krista pointed out. She was like, oh, there's just a Bible verse just out in the middle of town. What is that? Yeah, we're in the Bible Belt. That's what it looks like here. Well, what happens is things seem okay. And when things seem okay, you know what we do? We get lazy. And when we get lazy, we let our guards down. And we relax a little bit. 
and we let our guards down and relax a little bit, we stop working. We get sloppy. We make mistakes. We get distracted. We get out of shape. We stop reading the Bible privately. We stop reading the Bible as a family. We stop studying the Bible. Now we're just listening to it and enjoying it. We stop memorizing the Bible. We convince ourselves that my mind just can't handle that. Basically, we stop internalizing God's word. We're content to simply scratch the surface, and we're convinced that this is okay, because at least I do it daily. You can be in your Bible and still not be a person of the word. Let me tell you, that convicts me. I don't know about you. As I'm writing these words, I'm thinking, <sighs> to see what I'm suggesting, look at verse 19. We spent a long time there on purpose. Verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Here, Paul is quoting Isaiah 29, 14. In the ESV, it simply says this, The wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Isaiah 29, 14. However, Paul's quote here doesn't line up with that perfectly. Do you know why? Paul is quoting from the Septuagint. What's the Septuagint? It is, instead of the Hebrew Scriptures, it's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. In the same way that I have an English translation of the Hebrew and the Greek Scriptures. Does that kind of make sense? Okay, so he has the Septuagint. It's the Greek version of the Hebrew. And in the Greek version, in the Greek version of the Septuagint, his wording lines up almost exactly. That's what he's quoting from. And he does this and gives us a little bit of a interpretive nugget of gold here. In the, in the Hebrew, it doesn't say, God is not saying, I will do this. He just says that the wisdom of the wise men shall perish. But if you go to Isaiah 29 and back up a few verses you'll see that God has closed the eyes of the prophets and covered the heads of the seers so that they cannot see and understand. And then in verse 11, God explains that the words of this prophecy will not be discernible to Israel. They'll be like a blind man who can't see or like a servant who has a scroll that's sealed and he can't see inside of it. This is another way of saying God will not allow you to read it. And then we come to verse 13 which gives the reason that God is building Israel, which gives the reason that God is blinding Israel so that she cannot see and be wise and be discerning. Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, I will destroy their wisdom and discernment. They thought that they could do these things without me, I'll show them that they can't, is what he's saying. This is why Paul uses that verse from Isaiah here. To those who are perishing, all of this makes no sense. Why? Because God will not let it make sense. Why? Because your heart is far from him. In that moment, you don't truly want the truth of God. They just want to be amazed or entertained. 
Paul continues in verse 20. Well, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Again, Paul is pulling from Isaiah. This time, it's more of an illusion, and it's from Isaiah chapter 19, verse 12. God is promising to destroy Egypt, but God, through the prophet Isaiah, tells Egypt, he tells Pharaoh, hey, Pharaoh, if your wise men are so wise and you don't need me, and they can tell you what's going to happen, then call them and let them tell you what I'm about to do. Let's see if they get it right. God says in that moment, where then are your wise men? Let them tell you. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's saying, do you think that eloquent words of wisdom has any bearing on the impact of the gospel? Do you think wisdom has anything to do with it? Then where are your wise men? Bring them forward. Let's hear it. But they can't. Why is that? Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now this sentence, the construction makes it difficult to digest, but this is crucial for our understanding today. The heart of the verse is in the second half. I want you to start where it says, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Forget the first half of the verse right now. It pleases God through the folly of preaching, a lot of translations will say, and I think that's an accurate translation as well. It can go either way here. It pleases God through the folly of preaching to save those who believe. So I'm going to simplify that. God is pleased to use just plain old preaching to save those who believe. And we should ask, why does that please God? Now we can back up to the first half of the verse. It pleased God because in the wisdom of God, in his wise mind, the world does not know God through wisdom. God planned that. He decided the world will not come to know me through wisdom. It's not going to be that those who are smart enough to figure me out will see me, and then those who are not smart enough to figure me out, sorry, hate it for you. God planned it to not be that way because he's wise. So he flexes his wisdom by designing an instrument of salvation that has nothing to do with the recipient. Whether you're a fool or a genius means nothing. You don't have to be wise to know God because knowledge of God doesn't come through wisdom. God is transcendent. That means that he is so far above us, he's out of reach. I can never know anything about God unless, what do you think that is? Unless he tells me. He's inaccessible. If God chose to never say anything, I would go my whole existence never knowing he was there. We have to hear from God to know God. He reveals himself. The word for this is revelation. And generally, Christians recognize two types of revelation. There's general revelation and special revelation. General revelation is how God reveals himself to all people generally in the things that he's created. If you're taking notes and you want to write down Romans chapter 1, Verses 19 through 20, you'll see an example of this. People have evidence of God in creation, and they are able to see that God is there and that he's powerful. That's general revelation. It can tell us that there is a God, and it can tell us some things about God, but it's very limited. 
And it's accessible to everyone. Everyone has access to this. Now there's also special revelation. And this is how God reveals himself more specifically to specific people. If you want to write down Psalm 19 here, it's not a coincidence that in this psalm you have general revelation in the first six verses or so, and then you have special revelation in the next set of verses. It's very intentional. This is how God reveals himself specifically. And the primary form of special revelation today is, can anybody guess? It's right here. God's word. This is where we find out that we are sinners destined for wrath. This is where we find out what God has done to save us from our sin through Jesus. General revelation cannot give me that knowledge, and neither can man's wisdom. That's the point. A wise man without this book may be able to look at everything and say, Oh, there is a God. I can see it in creation. Look at how everything is formed. Marvelous. And he's going to die in his sin. Because his wisdom cannot reveal, oh, I see also, I perceive sin within me that I think can be atoned for through the blood of the Son of God. No one reasons that out. That doesn't happen that way. This is Paul's whole point. Man's wisdom is not the instrument God has chosen to inform us or to save us. God has chosen the foolish instrument of preaching the preaching of his word to save people. Why? Because it removes all boasting and credit from us and it gives it all to God where it belongs. If we could know God through wisdom, that would be to our credit. I figured it out all on my own. And this is our second and final point this morning. The power of the gospel is in the message, not the messenger. This is how it ties into Paul's argument in Corinthians. The power of the gospel is in the message, not the messenger. And not even in the one receiving the message. The power is located in the gospel, and it hits the one who receives it differently. To put it differently, a moment ago we said the power is the content of the message, not the packaging. You could also say it's a matter of what's being delivered, not so much how it's delivered. Now that's not to say these things have no value. If I got up here and preached in Spanish, I think a few people in here would get it. Most of us would not. That's not to say these things aren't important. Language matters. Presentation matters. But the power to be affected by it does not depend on those things. And I'll tell you how I know that. We have a brother that is visiting with us every single week who probably understands very little of what I'm saying. But then he will have moments of saying, he'll hear me say Jesus, and he'll say, praise God. Amen. The power is in the message. I didn't ask permission to share that. I hope you don't mind, brother. God doesn't want us to be wowed or deeply affected by the way we hear the gospel. He wants us to be wowed or deeply affected by the gospel. But in our flesh, that's not really what we want, is it? Again, I'm going to point us back to the center of Paul's concern. The church in Corinth is dividing over teachers. They have stylistic preferences that they've elevated to unhealthy levels, and it's causing division. The chief concern is what I want, what I like. And in the same way, we don't really want to humbly submit to the simple preaching of God's word. What do we want? We want something powerful, emotionally stimulating, moving, convincing, entertaining, applicable, something practical. 
something theoretical. And it's the exact same problem in our final verses, 22 through 24. What do the Jews want? Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Greeks, to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. The Jews wanted a sign. They wanted to see a visible demonstration of God's power. I'll believe it when I see it. They didn't want to humbly submit. They wanted to be convinced on their own terms. The Greeks, likewise, wanted wisdom. They wanted logical proof. Oh yeah, prove it to me. Answer my questions. They also didn't want to humbly submit. They wanted to be convinced on their own terms. It does not please God to display his power according to my terms. The crucifixion of Jesus isn't the sign the Greeks were looking for, and it wasn't the logic the Greeks, it wasn't the sign the Jews were looking for, and it wasn't the logic the Greeks were looking for. The Jews wanted to see a God who could keep himself from dying. If you're the Son of God, take yourself down. Tell us who hit you, Messiah. That's what the Jews wanted. The Greeks wanted to see a God who doesn't come down to serve his people, but is served by his people. And he's over certain things in the universe, and we can see evidence of these things. They don't want a God who dies. That doesn't make sense to them. The crucifixion is foolish to those who are setting their own terms for how they will be convinced. It's all about pride. No one comes to Jesus through pride. It's only through humility that we come to Jesus. One commentator said this, Christianity begins not with solving intellectual difficulties, but with satisfying the heart that longs for forgiveness. There is forgiveness to be had in Christ this morning. Maybe you have never experienced this power that I'm talking about, but you do know one thing. I am not forgiven of my sin. There is really good news. You don't have to be the wisest, You don't have to be the most moral. You can't be. You simply have to come to God and ask, and he will richly bestow upon you the blessing of forgiveness. And I don't mean saying, okay, God, please forgive me. Now I can go back to what I want to do. God sees the heart. And it is not the words that we profess, but the heart with which we profess them. God, I am sorry for my sin. Will you forgive me? And he will save you. That is the power of God's word. Only a humble heart can long for forgiveness. Only a humble heart can recognize its need for forgiveness and appreciate the message of this book. On the contrary, a proud heart is concerned less with what it needs and more with what it wants. If the gospel is the content of the preaching then how it's preached makes little to no difference. And the little difference that it might make probably isn't significant enough to divide over. That's what Paul is saying. Jesus is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And Jesus is made known through the proclamation of God's word. Therefore, 
Those who are being saved submit to the preaching of God's word and in so doing experience tremendous power and enjoy tremendous wisdom even when the preaching isn't sugar-coated with linguistic gimmicks and eloquent rhetoric. Those who are not being saved, when they hear God's word, will divert back to earthly standards of persuasion because that's really what they want. They want to be the one that is smart enough or wise enough to figure it out. They want to be the one who is good enough to deserve to understand it or to do the right thing on their own. And in God's wisdom, they will never experience the power of God because they are pridefully rejecting it. The power isn't in the preacher or the presentation. It's in what's being presented, the word of the cross. Let's pray. Lord, I confess to you that I am not worthy to be a proclaimer of the gospel. I echo the words of Paul, who freely confessed, I am the chief of sinners, first among them. But praise be to God that you do not count my wisdom, my previous life, anything about me as something that can keep me from your infinite message of mercy and forgiveness and grace. Thank you for saving even a worm like me, for now calling me a saint, a sanctified child of God who will one day dwell with you for all eternity, exalting you and singing your praises. God, thank you for your word that you have given to us to be power for us. Forgive us for making everything but that the most significant issues that we have in life. Forgive us for folding up your power in a nice leather binding and putting it on a shelf to collect dust. Forgive us for not taking your word and storing it within us so that when we go out, we will be ready to engage people, not with a convincing evangelistic presentation, but with the simple power of your word. Lord, make us into a word-filled people. According to the work of your son, the living word, Jesus Christ, we ask all these things. Amen.